Uh, my name's Michael Olester, and the name of my book is Tonight at Six, a daily show masquerading as local TV news. I want to thank Greg Wilhelm, uh, the editor at Apprentice House, and um, who, who really did a wonderful job editing the book. I want to thank Gabby Heller, who designed the cover, which is, uh, which is just terrific. Um, I've been a newsman for about 40 years. Never had any thought to getting into broadcasting. It sort of fell into my lap. And what also fell into my lap was a series of revelations about the difference between television news and real news. For readers of a certain age, uh, this book will be a kind of a behind the scenes, behind the curtain peek at um, names that are very familiar to them. Jerry Turner, Al Sanders, Oprah Winfrey as a young woman, um, all the way up to um, Denise Coke and Vic Carter and Sally Thorner and Kai Jackson and of course Richard Sher and Bob Turk and all the, the familiar uh, local personalities, mostly at Channel 13, but what I attempt to do in the book is broaden it from Channel 13 to the other stations in town, as well as the other local television news operations around the country, because what goes on uh, in Baltimore is going on all over the country in similar ways. And um, so I'm, I want to give a behind-the-scenes look at what local television is like because for, now you see people are coming tonight I'm going to have to start all over again. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Okay. Um, there was a time um, at the dawning of TV news, at the dawning of when they began to understand that they had the electronic equipment to make it work to make it look like real news, to make it look like they could go all over the state and report from anywhere where they thought, this is the future. Television news looked like the future. And look where we are today, only a couple of decades later. We are at a point where the networks are laying people off like crazy. The local stations, which were once thought to be gold mines, are now beginning to lay people off. My first night on the air at Channel 13 in 1983, uh, as I sat down very, very nervously to do my first uh, live broadcast, one of the cameramen said to me, you know, there will be half a million people watching you tonight. <laughs> just, just what I needed to hear because I wasn't nervous enough. Today, um, each of the... I would say Channel 13 has about a five or a six share. Um, that translates, each share is worth 9,900 homes. So if you take, a, say, a six share and multiply it by 10,000 homes, you have not, not half a million people, yet you have 60,000 homes that are watching. So a tremendous number of people have simply said, this doesn't speak to us anymore. This, we realize, after being charmed early in the game, um, that this was the future, that it isn't. That it's, at best, a headline service, and at worst, a charade and a, a mockery of what actual news is. 
we live in a, in a time of great change. Um, television, which as I say was once seen as the future, um, is now part of a glut of means of how we get our news. Um, I have spoken in recent weeks to uh, several college classes and to several high school classes, and I asked them, where do you get your news? How many of you read a daily newspaper? A couple of hands will go up. How many of you watch local television news? Nobody. Nobody. How many of you get it off the web? And that's where the hands go up. Maybe half the, half the hands in the class will go up. Um, they're getting it off newspaper websites. They're not getting it from television anymore, particularly young people, but, but people of, of an older generation as well. We have begun to see through the charade, and that's what the book is about. Where did it go wrong? It's an affectionate look at the people you know who've been on the air for years and years, but it's also a look at how the system has screwed them and the system has screwed us as viewers, as people who want to know what's going on in our communities. I, uh, I spent 19 years at WJZ. I started out as a newspaper reporter. I worked for a newspaper called the News American. Remember that one? Yes. yes. And um, it was a delightful place to work. And we, we probably had 125 people in the newsroom. When I went to the Morning Sun, it was, God, two, 300 people. The Evening Sun, again, of, of lamented memory, um, probably 150. You look at any television newsroom, any local television newsroom in America, you know how many reporters they have? Now remember, we're talking about covering the whole metro area, Baltimore City, Baltimore County, Anne Arundel, Harford, Howard, Carroll Counties, the governor, the legislature, the mayor, the city council, all the county councils, the public school system, the, the private schools, the police, the courts, the neighborhoods, on and on and on. The newspapers try to do it with, with 100 or, or more people. Every television station in America, they've got about 20 reporters. 20. Now, how do you do it with 20? And the answer is, you can't. You can't. You go for what looks good. You go for the for the, the thing that's visual. And I remember being in the newsroom at Channel 13 one day, and they got a report that a, um, on one of the police scanners, that a, an empty warehouse had caught fire. Well, in the life of a big city, that's not such big news. But the news producer's first words were, how high are the flames? How high are the flames? How visual is it? Because when we're watching news, on television, we're doing other things as well. We're making dinner for the kids, we're eating dinner, we're talking, we might even be reading the newspaper, we might be reading a book. We're doing all kinds of things, maybe folding the laundry. And so you want visual stuff, and that's the key. It isn't texture, it isn't what's actual news, it's what is what looks good. And how do you do it with 20 people? You can't. You go for what looks good, you go for what looks official. But beyond that, it isn't really 20 people. It isn't really 20 people. Because each station has at least four anchor people. 
two at five o'clock, two at six o'clock. They don't go out looking for stories. I hate to disillusion you. They come in at three o'clock in the afternoon and they read copy that has been prepared for them that they'll read off the teleprompter. They do not, the best of them, Jerry Turner, Al Sanders, love them both. Jerry, great guy, Al, wonderful man, love them both. They came in and they essentially read off the teleprompter. On occasion, they would do some reporting if it was a real big story, but that wasn't what they did. That's not what anchors do. They come in and they read. So it's not really 20 people, it's really more like 16. Well, it's not really 16 because each station has at least three people nowadays doing the weather. They don't do news, they do weather. So it's not really 16, it's really 13. Well, it isn't really 13 because, because each station has at least two sports reporters. They don't do news, they do sports. So it's not really 13, it's 11. Well, it's not really 11 because each station has at least three people who do the morning show. They're out of there after the noon news. You know, they're on for the morning show where they're reading wire copy and they're, you know, they're kibitzing and, you know, a lot of it is off the cuff stuff. So those people are out of there. They're not, they're not looking for the news for the five and the six and the 11 o'clock. So it's not really 11, it's really, are, are we down? Yeah, eight, right? I, I, subtraction was never my skill. Well, it's not really eight because each station has at least three people, at least, or four people, who work weekends. And they've got to have time off during the week. Now, some of you are looking at me now and saying, cut it out. It's absurd, the idea that a handful of people would go out each and every day and attempt to cover the entire state of Maryland, particularly the metro area. You can't do it. You can't even cover downtown Baltimore with five people. You can't cover Liberty Heights Avenue with five people. And so you go for what's easiest. And, and that's not really what news is. It's, what, it's the look of news. That was one of the first things I found when I, when I got to, into television. Now, let me give you a little bit of background, because I, you know, I was a reporter, a newspaper reporter. Never had any thought to getting into broadcasting, and I get a call one day from a fellow named Alan Barrier. Remember WCAO Radio when it was the rock and roll station yes. in town? And, um, and Alan Barrier was the news director, and this is the mid-1970s. He calls me. I had, I had been a reporter here, and I had and I'd also worked in London, and I came back, and I was an investigative reporter, and then started doing a column. I had been doing a column for about a year, and I get a call from Alan Barrier at WCAO, and he says, look, um, you, have, you have to understand, this is when... FM radio was beginning to make inroads into AM, and they were, they had stereo, and so the sound of the music was better. People were giving up on AM radio for music, and talk was just beginning to come in in AM. And WCAO, which had been this rock and roll powerhouse, figured, you know what, we better start bringing in some talk, otherwise we're going to lose all our listeners. So I was the first experiment. He calls me and he says, we'd like you to come on the air and do commentary sports. I said, I, I don't know anything about radio. I'd make a fool of myself. And he said, no, it's, it's easy. Just come on the air and do commentaries like your column. 
I said, you know, well, sometimes in my column, I do things like criticize radio. He said, fine, come on the radio and criticize radio. He said, we believe in freedom of speech. Freedom of speech is very important. I said, no, I really don't think I could. And then he mentioned money. And I said, you know, you're right. Freedom of speech is terribly important. And so I, I was on WCAO for four years. And the ratings were continuing to go down. My 90 seconds a day didn't, didn't turn the tide. So Alan Barrier came to me after four years. He says, we're going to have to make some changes in your department, uh, which meant, you know, he said, he said we're going to have to get rid of some of the people here who are doing commentaries. I was the only one doing commentaries. So that was it. I hooked on with WBAL radio for two years. Do you remember the name Christine Kraft? She was an anchor woman at a television station in Kansas City. She was fired when an outside consultant came in and said she wasn't young enough, she wasn't pretty enough, and she wasn't deferential enough to her male co-anchor, and she was fired. Well, I did a column in the, in the Sun saying how disgusting this was that these outside consultants come in and, and these are their values. And I, that afternoon that the, that the column appeared, I went over to BAL to do my commentary, and I got called into the general manager's office. I, I tell some of these stories in the book, by the way. And uh, he says, um, we're going to have to let you go. Oh, he says, he says, I don't know if you know it or not, but we have an outside consultant here in the building now. I said, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, we have to let you go. I said, why? He says, well, he says you don't fit in here anymore. And I was fired that day. Now, a week later, I'm coming out of the food store. I went grocery shopping. I'm coming out of the store, and I bump into a guy who, when I was a freshman at University of Maryland, had been my intro to speech instructor. His name, he had since gone into television. His name is Richard Scher. Everybody remember that name? Of course. And he, he sees me and jokingly says to me, hey, when are you going to let me make you a TV star? And I, having just been fired, said to him, not so jokingly, now. And they, he said, let me talk to the news director. They brought me in. They gave me a screen test. I have seen it. It is awful. As I'm sitting there, I'm gesturing, and I'm leaning, and it looks like my head's going to fall off my shoulders. But I could put words together. I talked about, uh, in this commentary, I had gone to get gas at Falls Road and Cold Spring Lane across from the Poly Western Complex. And there was a kid there in his teens who was pumping gas. And all these kids across the street were going into the school to go to class. And here was this kid, and I said, how come you're not going? He says, oh, I dropped out last year. And here was the contrast. This kid pumping gas because he couldn't put up with another year of school versus these kids who were sticking it out. So I did that, that contrast, and I guess they figured they could work on my posture, and they gave me a job, and I was there for the next 19 years, 19, a little over 19 years. And, um, and it was an education to see the skimpiness of the staff and to see people dancing as fast as they could day in and day out, people really devoted to trying to do it knowing they couldn't because they were virtually a handful of people trying to cover this, this huge metropolitan area and trying to tell the truth about what was going on and not having a clue because there weren't even enough reporters to have beats. 
to, that somebody was literally covering City Hall every day. No, nobody was. Nobody was, was told, you cover the schools every day, you cover the state's attorney's office every day, you cover the, the private schools, the public schools, you cover the governor. And it was, it was just haphazard. But it got worse. And here's where it got worse. 9-11. Um, 9-11, everything changed. Because the honest thing to do for local television stations would have been to say, here's, our, here's a report from our affiliate. Here's, here's a report from our network. In, in WJZ's case, CBS. Because they had people who they sent to Iraq and Afghanistan. But even before we sent troops in, they had people at the United Nations. They had people in Washington at the White House and covering Congress. They had people who were filing reports. And how were they filing these reports? They were sending in the video. They were also sending in the audio. They were sending in the the reporter's voice, and they were also sending in the written script of these reporters' voices. And what decision was made by those in charge at WJZ, by, particularly by the general manager, a fellow named Jay Newman? Remove the CBS reporter's voice and have our reporters do the voiceover as though they had actually covered the story. And night after night, you saw people such as Pat Warren, who, who realized that this was crazy, sent down to Washington so she could do a live 10 or 15 second live stand-up in front of the Capitol building. You know, they met in Congress today and they talked about this and then they would go to the video that CBS had sent and to the audio that they had had Pat Warren record by reading the CBS reporter's original script. Night after night after night. They sent Kai Jackson. They said, Kai Jackson is at the Pentagon after the plane flew into the Pentagon. Kai Jackson, nobody got near the Pentagon. Poor Kai stood out on the side of a highway and did his 10 or 15 second live intro, and then they went to the video that CBS had supplied and his voiceover. And during the five o'clock, they would say, Denise Koch, Sally Thorner would say, Denise Koch has been tracking events in the Middle East. And here's her report. Well, Denise was doing the same thing. She, this is not uh, an indictment of Denise. Denise did what she was told and she would read and do the voiceover. And on the six o'clock, when Denise was anchoring, she would say, Sally Thorner has been tracking events in the Middle East and has this report. Well, if you had been watching the five o'clock, you knew Sally wasn't tracking events in the Middle East. She'd been sitting there anchoring the five o'clock. So let me read you a couple of pages, if I might, from the book. It so happened I was standing there just shooting the breeze one night in the newsroom with Denise Koch. We were talking about how I had covered Helen Bentley one night and 
Helen didn't like the fact that I had said that she was 78 years old and she was thinking of running for Congress. And she didn't like the fact that I had mentioned her age. And so she gave me a gentle punch into the stomach, as only Helen Bentley can. The voice on the newsroom, the voice on the newsroom intercom arrived like an alarm clock trying to jangle its way into a reluctant consciousness. Denise Koch had said, we need you. I was standing in Koch's little office where the two of us were talking about the personal feistiness of a former Maryland congresswoman out of power for eight years who was running to snatch back her old seat. She was at least 78 years old, a fact I had inconveniently mentioned on the air. The former congresswoman did not appreciate this. On the campaign trail one night in her playful Mammy Yoakum way, she threw a couple of pretty good bare knuckle punches into my midsection. It was her way of showing she was still a tough little cookie. But you took it like a man, Coke said. With this body, I said, patting a soft, with this body, I said, patting a soft belly where there had once been a washboard, I'll take her best shot and never get up. Denise Coke, the voice on the intercom said again, this time even more urgently, it was coming from the TV station's control room. We need you right away. Now Coke's eyes flipped open in alarm. The clock said 5.15 p.m. Coke was a six o'clock news anchor at WJZ and they needed her somewhere out there, but where? To deliver some tidy little 60 second story about impending war for the five o'clock broadcast. Coke, sucking air, arms flailing, bolted around her desk and charged into the newsroom, leaving behind all entertaining thoughts of the 78-year-old former congresswoman's punches to the midsection and all other matters not pertaining to the next few moments of her life standing in front of a, tele a te television camera. Where, she cried to a couple of young writer producers bent over computer keyboards, where am I going? The writer producers were bright lads not far removed from their college days. In the hallowed tradition of all local television news, which rewards on-air talent with sizable money and leaves chump change for the off-air scrubs, they had these marvelously impressive sounding job titles to compensate for their microscopic paychecks. Writer, producers indeed, they looked at Coke with complete ignorance. Newsroom or studio, she said. The bright young lads shrugged their shoulders. Coke looked behind them to an elevated little office of an executive producer named Mitch Friedman, who was short, curly-haired, and frequently given to Vesuvian eruptions. He liked to split the air with high decibel curses over life's major problems, such as soup that had chilled. But this time he hid his exasperation behind a studied look of deference to the station's senior anchor. Studio, he said. What's it about? Friedman's eyes scanned his printed five o'clock rundown. Iraq, I think, he said. You got about 30 seconds to get in there. Iraq it was. The President of the United States, George W. Bush, growing impatient with Saddam Hussein, was threatening to drop bombs on him. Ambassadors from the United Nations were urging calm. Bush said Hussein was an evil man. Demonstrators were protesting what seemed like the beginnings of combat in the Middle East. A year after the September 11th terrorist attacks, with American troops already combing Afghanistan, with the Palestinians and the Israelis blowing each other up almost daily, 
and with Hussein allegedly stockpiling weapons of mass destruction, the world was a nervous place. Koch, bolting through the newsroom now on shaky heels, cried, oh my God, she knew none, she knew none of the day's newest details. Something about Iraq, that's all she had. The clock was ticking and now it showed about 15 seconds left. Nobody had told her it was her turn to front for a Middle East piece. She hadn't seen any script, hadn't talked with anybody about it, and hadn't seen any video. And now she was going on camera before thousands of people gathered by their television sets to hear the news that would ultimately send America to war from the primary authority figure on their favorite local TV news program. Oh my God, Coke cried again. Her voice fluttered like Oliver Hardy going down a flight of stairs. You could hear her as she exited the newsroom and rushed down the hallway past the full-length mirror the anchors used for last-minute checks of their hair. Directly above two heavy studio doors, a light flashed on air. Coke yanked open one of the big doors and bolted into the studio as one of the five o'clock anchors, Sally Thorner, peered into the camera, pursed her lips earnestly, and declared, Denise Koch has been tracking events in the Middle East, and she has this report. <coughs> Denise Koch, uh, arriving in front of a chroma key background just in time to clip on a tiny microphone, handled it fine. She is a professional broadcaster, and this is what they do. Calmly reading from a teleprompter script, she related the president's newest threats, the UN's latest objections, the protests from foreign leaders and from Americans, worried about a new war. She was poised, and she appeared fully authoritative. She might have come, just come from talking to a high-ranking State Department official, instead of joking with me about the disgruntled former Maryland congresswoman. She never even paused to catch her breath. Half a world away from the crisis in the Middle East, the crisis of WJZ-TV in Baltimore, passed in the minute it took to deliver the story. All was well. Back in the newsroom, the two young writer-producers paused to watch the report on a TV monitor above them. One of them stifled a yawn. They learned fast. Nations might be marching to war, but this was simply one more news story reported in the usual way. When Coke walked back to her office a few minutes later, we glanced at each other and rolled our eyes with a familiar, if the public only knew, look. It'd make a great TV sitcom, wouldn't it? She laughed sardonically, but Koch, a 14-year veteran news anchor, was smart enough to understand it would be a sitcom posing as a news program for an audience that was too conditioned or too indifferent to see through the facade. And it was posing seven days a week, much in the same manner as hundreds of local TV news operations all over America. They commit fraud and pronounce it to be journalism. They put on a television program and give it an empty word, news. They do it in the same way in Baltimore as they do in Boston or Detroit or Phoenix or Los Angeles, while declaring themselves reporters and editors and friends you can turn to. They put on a program disguised as news and resist the temptation of actual journalism. They do it with a small collection of on-air reporters who perform a corporate charade. They pretend to cover entire metropolitan areas. They go through the motions of covering entire states. They feign insight into governors and mayors and county executives, police stations and courthouses, neighborhoods and cities and suburbs. 
state legislatures and city councils, private and public school systems, business communities, political campaigns, economic systems, traffic jams, sports teams, weather reports, and when the situation arises, crises in the Middle East. They do it with too much airtime to fill and not enough personnel to fill it. Local operations that once put on 30 minutes of news now give us as much as three hours each evening, a process by which they give viewers more and more of less and less. They do it with reporters, photographers, producers, and technicians, sometimes dancing so fast you can practically see sparks coming out of their shoes. They promote themselves ceaselessly as full-service news organizations when in truth they play an artful con game, and they do it with shadows and mirrors created by general managers so consumed by financial statements that their programs present the look of news but utterly diminish and distort the actual events of the day. That's just a couple of pages. Um, I think there, there are a couple of audiences and I who I aimed the book at, and then I, I'll be happy to answer any questions. Um, the book is aimed at anybody who cares about the role in democracy that mass media plays. If we don't get the news, we don't know what's going on. And their people in power are playing games with us. They're playing games behind our backs because we don't know. Look at you know, we all know that newspapers are cutting back right and left today, but so are television stations. And they don't have that much to cut back to begin with. The book is also aimed at all those who care about mass media, who care about the process in which news is gathered, who care about the people who put this stuff together. And the book is also aimed at young people who are thinking to themselves, do I want to do this for a living? Is this how I can fulfill my dream? And is this how I can serve my life as well as the life of my community? Um, the book is an affectionate look at most of the people who are on the air, who, who are doing the best they can. But it is a highly critical look at the system that says this is how you have to do it because that is the system that is, um, that is a tortured system, that is a, a criminal system, that is a fraudulent system. And yet, we have millions of people tuning in around the country every night and thinking, this is the way it is. It isn't. So I hope that uh, you'll each buy at least 10 copies. And um, it's tonight at 6, a daily show masquerading as local TV news. Any questions? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, there's something I've always wanted to know. How do they know how many millions of people watch, like, American Idol, or the, what you were saying about how many people watch the news? How do they know this? That's a good question, and I don't know. They have all kinds of monitoring devices. Now they have, they have you know, don't you? Huh? Yeah, they have, the, they have a meter system now. Yeah. Where they, where they electronically No, It used to be... They had people filling out diaries, you know, mm -hmm. and they were really watching I Love Lucy, but they would put down that they were watching Walter Cronkite. Right. But now they're, they're meters and they're, they can, they know exactly. Used to be we would get the ratings every, what, every month or so, every couple of months. Now it's every day. They know every day. And they used to have 
parties in the newsroom at Channel 13 every time the ratings came out. Parties. Those days were long since over. I mean, when I was there, our ratings were higher than 2 and 11 combined. Oh, combined. Yeah. I remember. Now it's, now it's way back. It's yeah. number two and, and falling. It's, it's, it's a pity what it has happened. It's terrible. Yes? Uh, what do you think, um, what, what do you think The, the future is going to be, if newspapers don't survive, I don't mean to sound too dramatic, if newspapers don't survive, democracy cannot survive the way it is. Because newspapers are the only ones who have legitimate staffs. Television and radio take their stuff from newspapers. I mean, we had reporters at 13 would show up in the morning and editors would hand them a clip from the morning paper. Here, do a follow-up on this. Literally. Um, radio, you know, there's, there's really, WBAL radio has maybe half a dozen news people. And they're the only radio station in town. I mean, WYPR has a handful, but um, maybe three or four. I don't, I'm, I don't think that they're full time. In any event, it's a handful. You, you go on any website, they're not, they're not developing their own stories. It's commentary. It's commentary based on stories from newspapers. Everything beyond newspapers is, is taken from newspapers. Now, the question is, what's going to be the, the shape of the newspapers? And, you know, when I, when I talk to young people, they say they get their news off the web, if they get it at all. Newspapers are getting tremendous numbers of hits on their websites. Question is, can they get enough advertising on the websites to support the numbers of reporters that, that they're trying to support? And that we don't know. Circulation for the papers themselves is dropping. Advertising for the papers themselves is dropping. But they're picking up all these new readers and they have to figure out a way. They're picking up all the new readers on the web. They have to figure out a way to make that profitable. If they don't, we, we're in very bad in this country, because papers are the only ones who are getting it. Isn't it? The question is, there's so much bad news on TV, can, can that be turned around? Well, television lives off of bad news. Look, I, all news is contentiousness. One person saying or doing something and another person saying or doing something in opposition to that. So there's always going to be that. The question is, what's important? Is it important that there's an empty warehouse on fire so that it looks like your city is burning down? Um, is it important that, that we see murder? Yes, it is important within context. What television gives you is the kid shot in the street what television gives you is the poor, sobbing mother 
leaning over the kid weeping. What it doesn't ever give you is why is this going on? What is the texture here? Why do we have kids who are shooting each other? Where does this desire to participate in the drug game come from? Why is there this craziness in the schools that's producing all this? That's what television never gives you because it isn't the look of drama. Because they think that if, if it's not dramatic looking, that we're not going to watch. They also think that we're really dumb and that we won't stay with any story if it goes longer than 90 seconds longer than 90 seconds. They think that there's a Pavlovian thing that goes on, that we start to salivate for something new after a certain period of time. And so they give us 90-second stories, 60-second stories, 30-second stories. I'm not exaggerating, am I? This young lady uh, works at the, our favorite television station. 15-second stories. Um, and what has happened is we've been watching television for the last 50, 60 years. And we have become, um, you know, like Pavlov's dog. We, we begin to salivate for something new, something dramatic. And now, in particular, with these remote controls. And my wife is sitting here, and she will tell you, you know, there is a fight for the remote control. And, you know, if I'm watching the Orioles, I'm hitting that remote control between pitches. Um, I don't want to be disloyal to my gender, but you know, they say that women want to see what's on television, men want to see what else is on television. Um, and and we're, we're quick to hit it. And you know, the people who run television know that. And they know that we're quick to hit that remote, and if we hit it, the ratings go down, the ratings go down, the advertising revenues go down, and so it's not so much what real news is, is what is really dramatic looking news. And look, how many of you watched the debate the other night between Obama and Clinton? You know, uh, ABC has gotten a storm of, of um, negative feedback to this. I mean, thousands and thousands and thousands of people have emailed the station and phoned the, not the station, but the, uh, the network, to say that, that the questioning from Charlie Gibson and George Stephanopoulos was, was um, juvenile and um, was dated and was um, unimportant. And, you know, their response has been, we probably should have moved up the heavy stuff, you know, the war, the economy, <laughs> gas prices, you know, foreclosures on thousands and thousands of people who are, who are so frantic with worry now they were an hour into this broadcast before they got to it. And so their response was, yeah, maybe we should have moved that up earlier. Why didn't they? Because what people haven't figured out is because this wasn't just a debate. It was a television debate. They had advertisers who they, you know, they had guaranteed would, there would be a certain audience. They gave the sexy questions up front to hold on to that audience. And they did. They had more than 10 million people who watched it, which was, I think that's the highest of any debate that they've had. So that's, that's the answer to your question. They want, they want the look of drama. And a lot of that is bad news. You had a question, didn't you? Yeah. 
did have a question. The question I have is, is I hear you speak, um, and the television seems to be based upon the image or the subject. And, and the question you're asking young people is where they get the news, then it seems like it just, the television will just be transported over to the web, and we still live in a world where we're not really educated and informed. Well, you're right, and, and you know what's happening now is the TV stations have their own websites, and so they're promoting the websites as much as they're promoting the TV show itself. We had, I bumped into a, a sports producer named Mike Pupo. Is Mike still there? Yeah. Mike is the guy who does all the behind-the-scenes work for the sports guys before they get on the air. And he said, um, he said, you know, we're just promoting the hell out of the websites now. And he said, we had not a heavy snow, but a little bit of snow one winter day, uh, last winter, not, not this one we just got through but a year ago. And they stuck a camera out the back window to watch the, and they were saying on the air, you know, for, for further look at the snow, go to our website, was it wjz.com? And he said, in, within the first 20 minutes, he said we had thousands and thousands and thousands of hits. He said, do you understand what I'm saying? He said, we had people who would sooner look out our back window than their own back window. <laughs> but what are they getting? They're getting the look out a back window of snow falling. So it's still, what's, it's the, still the look of things. Yes. Here's, here's, what, here's what happened. We were, in the beginning, we were charmed. We were charmed. And you're not old enough to remember Edward R. Murrow, for Pete's sake. Um, but remember the example I gave earlier about, about them taking the audio and using their own people's voices over it? Edward R. Murrow stood on rooftops in London during the Blitz and broadcast that back to America. The, the, the same thing would be as if you know, some radio station here in town took his script and had one of their people read it as though they were standing on a rooftop in London. So in the early days of radio and television, we were charmed. But think about it. Walter Cronkite, for years, at the end of his 30-minute broadcast, what did he used to say to us every night? And that's the way it is. Well, 30 minutes, and not really 30 minutes, because it was eight minutes of commercials. In 22 minutes every night, he was trying to give us the planet. Not just Baltimore, not just the metro area, not just America, the world. The world. Right. And that's the way it is. Well, now we're, we're far more, we like to think, we're far more sophisticated than to buy into that. But, um, you know, when local TV came in, we were charmed by Rolf Hertzgard by Jerry Turner and Al Sanders. And by the way, I, I dedicate the book to Jerry and Al because they sat there night after night, night after night, we'd break for a commercial and they'd sit there and pound the desk. What are we doing? By the end of the show, nobody's left alive. Because, you know, every segment, some kid was getting shot. 
we were doing the, the thing that was easiest and bloodiest. You know, the old line, if it bleeds, it leads. Well, you know, it worked for a long time. Jerry and Al were such tremendous personalities that it covered a lot of the superficiality behind it. We, we have learned to look beyond that now, and this is why the numbers are dropping, like, like something you know, thrown down a flight of stairs. Uh, a new day has come for television. Yes? Yeah, well, again, you know, the, the question is that, that CBS is rumored that they're going to have a kind of a, a merger where they'll be using CNN reporters. Um, I think that, you know, it certainly prop up CBS, but they're still doing 22 minutes a night. They're still doing 22 minutes a night. So no matter how many reporters around the world. But look, when CNN came in, it, we were charmed because they were all over the world. There's a war going on. How much stuff do you see on the war, night after night now, on CNN? Very little. What you see on all their big news programs now is stuff on the presidential race. Well, we've been watching this now for over a year. Much too long. We've never had a campaign like this. Why have we had it this time? Because cable has all this time to fill. And the candidates thinking, great. I can get free time, they're happy to fill it. And the cable stations are happy to do it because it's, it's news and it's cheap news. It's much cheaper to have people talking heads in a studio in Washington or New York than to send crews to Afghanistan and Iraq where there are wars going on and we're not there. So the flip side of that, I'll tell one last story, and then we're, we're running out of time here. By the way, I will be downstairs after this uh, at the table to sign books, if, if anybody would like. How many years ago was it that Baltimore City got cable? A dozen years? Roughly? Roughly. Jonathan Klein was the general manager at uh, WJZ then, and we had a, a staff meeting at night in the conference room, and all the on-air people were there, and Klein said, we're about to get cable TV in Baltimore. Um, we know that our raw numbers are going to drop. Um, in Boston, the network affiliates have dropped 30% of their audience since cable came in. So we know our raw numbers are going to drop, but we hope to hold on to our percentage of the network affiliates, and we hope that after these people do their glancing around, that they will come back to us. And I walked out of the meeting that night with George Bauman, who had been in TV from the beginning, and Marty Bass, and Marty is going, this is Hiroshima. This is Hiroshima. <laughs> Marty never won given to understatement. And George Bauman said, I feel like it's 1945. This story's in the book also. George said, I feel like it's 1945, and we're all at a radio station, and they're telling us, Listen, there's this new invention coming in. It's called television. And we know that people are going to watch it for a while, but we think they'll come back to us. <laughs> and John Buren had it right. Remember John Buren, the sports yes, guy? Yes. He said, he said, I'm not worried about CNN, MSNBC. He said, they're not interested in the City Poly game. 
They're not interested in what goes on in the Baltimore City Public Schools. They're not interested in Martin O'Malley or Sheila Dixon. They're interested in the latest earthquake in Bolivia or, or for a while, the war in Iraq and, and, and Afghanistan. They're interested in, you know, if somebody blows up a building in Oklahoma City. If we do what we do best, if we cover the Baltimore metropolitan area, they can't match us for that. And he was right. And the moment we had 9-11, all of that ended because they decided to pretend that we were covering that too. And this is the story of how we got from there to here. Thank you all for coming out today. I'm only getting out of here because we have to clear the room.